you know, it doesn't make a difference necessarily what your goals and your objectives are. The advisor is going to suggest what they think is best for the client without really understanding the goals and the objectives. So as a financial advisor, listening very carefully to your clients is the, is probably the most important thing. And then aligning the investments, which are considered like tools uh, with those goals and those objectives. And that's how you that's how you create uh, that. That's good financial planning. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 276. Hopefully everybody is having a great start to the new year here. Getting towards the middle of January. It'll be an interesting uh, few weeks here with the markets and seeing what the Fed does with rates. Something to uh, definitely pay, pay attention to as we get closer and closer to trying to see if what the Fed is doing with getting to a soft landing as it relates to inflation and wage growth and growth of the economy and, and everything else. Kind of in a tricky situation, given the effects that we've had after printing so much money from COVID. So, going to be uh, watching that closely myself, as well as the Republicans are taking over uh, Congress here shortly. And uh, we'll see what happens in the White House, if that affects things very much or not. wanted to read a review uh, that we got uh, just before the end of the last year from Salter98. Said a, a must hear podcast for fire. I've been listening to this podcast for five years and my financial life has changed for the better. Thank you for sharing info regarding millionaires who made a living not doing anything extraordinary, but still achieved to 10% wealth status in the United States of America. I plan on being on this show in three years to share my story. Appreciate that, Salter98. Uh, once again, appreciate all those that leave reviews. It helps us continue to grow the show and get new millionaire interviewees. Today on the show, we've got Rocco. He is about 48 years old and works as a private wealth advisor. His net worth is over $10 million, divided up between his business equity, public equities, and real estate, and a few other asset classes. We get into a great discussion with him about how he chose his career path and the things that he does with his personal finances even though he is a wealth advisor for very for a numerous uh, high-end and high-net-worth individuals. Last week at Saul, he had just over a million-dollar net worth. He was in his late 40s and worked as an IT consultant. We're coming up on episode number 300, so once again, would love to uh, get somebody who's got a high net worth that we could uh, feature on the show. Uh, last couple times we've done this for episode 100 and episode 200 and it's worked out pretty nicely so i'd like to continue that if possible so if you know anybody or if anybody's listening that would be willing to come on i would love to have you and love to interview you also if you're interested in just being on the show in general send an email at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com and we'll get you uh the forms to get situated and get rolling on that as well always looking for new great guests Without any further delay, let's get into the interview with Rocco. Rocco, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Sure, absolutely. Well, um, a little bit about my background. So I'm a private wealth advisor located in uh, on Eastern Long Island, Southampton, New York. 
uh, specializing working with highly successful entrepreneurs, business owners, and uh, CEOs. Um, been studying wealth management for a long time. Have been working with these this particular group for over 25 years, and so I've gotten to see a lot of the success secrets that um, that self-made millionaires actually practice in in in, in real life. So it's. I've had a great experience, a great career experience in uh, in working with that group. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? My net worth is in excess of $10 million. And that's between business equity, individual equities, um, real estate equity. And uh, so I've made different types of my own capital investments throughout the years as well. How would you allocate based on a percentage basis of your portfolio to, you know, maybe the top three or five categories? You know, you mentioned real estate equities, public equities, et cetera, business. How is that kind of divided up amongst your net worth? I would say that, you know, business equity is, is the bulk part of my uh, of my net worth. And after that is is um, is equities and in individual uh, equities, mutual funds, ETFs, and then uh, and then real estate, uh, real estate equity as well. And do you have a, a certain percentage you try to allocate to real estate and or public equities each year? Or is it just kind of depending on the year, how things go in the business and kicking off cash, et cetera? Well, I'm looking at all three and I, I'm trying to grow all three. So all three, so I, you know, every year try to grow our business equity and uh, through making capital investments in our business our um, traded equities. Traded equities, we look at, I look at basically trying to carve off 10, at least, you know, 10% of the income and, uh, and make those, uh, those capital investments in that space. And as far as real estate, we own our real estate that we're in as a, as a business and then um, have some additional properties as well for rental income. And are all those single family homes or multifamily or syndications or what? So, a couple of them are single-family homes. Some are commercial properties, uh, retail space, and uh, so it's a it's a combination of, of different ones. And and I'm also looking at you know trying to trying to um, improve those properties to try to maximize the rental income that that's able to come from them. And do you have a primary residence that you own? I do. Yep, uh, own a my primary residence, and um, big believer in people. Some people argue that oh, you should rent, but I'm a big believer in owning your primary residence, just so you have some kind of predictability in terms of your uh, monthly expenses. You know, people that are a renter, they're subject to the owner selling the properties, rent increases, all of those different types of things. And you know, one would say that we are in an inflationary environment, and if you're paying rent. In 10 years from now, your rent could be, you know, you think about rents increasing by four to five percent over the next 10 years, your, your rent could be 60, 70 percent higher than what it is today. Is your primary residence paid for? My primary residence has a, uh, we do have a mortgage on the property and um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, you know, there, there are some tax benefits that are associated with it, but also um, the having some leverage, uh, the leverage allows us to do other types of real estate activities and be able to acquire different things. You know, at, at, at a certain point in life, I would like to have no mortgage at all and uh, and pretty much remove all debt from um, from my overall picture. But uh, but, you know, I'm 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 48 years old. I'm still in the accumulation phase and using leverage um, in a smart way. I do believe adds uh, ad, you know, helps to add helps to uh, add 
millions of dollars to your to your net worth if it's used appropriately, right? Some people get out of hand with the use of debt, but if you use it responsibly, um, it could really add a tremendous amount of value to your to your balance sheet. Are all your properties? Do they all have mortgages? Uh, not all the properties. Uh, I would say that half of the properties do, and and we're working to to try to eliminate those. So you know, with aggressive paydowns. So uh, again, around the time where I'd like to trying to have some type of, you know, real financial independence where we're living off of the different resources at that point. I'd like to have really low to no liabilities at that time. So Rocco, how did you start working in wealth management? I, so, you know, if you think about the financial services world, I kind of thought, you know, I've always been interested in the financial services world and I've always been able, I've been always been interested in helping others. And when looking at all the different facets of the financial services world, the area that uh, the area that I I believe that was the best fit for me was in the wealth management world in working with individuals and helping them to achieve the financial goals. So this was I you know I looked at all the different areas and you've got areas from you know being a financial analyst to operations to leadership to you know CEOs and and um, I like the the idea of being able to sit with people one on one and helping them achieve their financial goals. And was that always your career route? Well, you know, I, I, growing I, you know as I was in college, I was studying marketing communications, and as I was you know coming towards the end of school, I was thinking, okay, you know, I think I'm. I'm going to be an investment banker, venture capitalist, and travel the world. And I looked closer at that work, and I realized that a tremendous amount of travel would be required. I knew that I wanted to be close to my hometown of uh, Patchogue on uh, Long Island, New York. And I, my, I'm you know very close with my parents. I am their only child, and so my parents immigrated from Italy in 1962, and so. If I had this job as a venture capitalist investment banker, I wouldn't really get to see them. So I wanted to be in financial services. I knew that I wanted to be, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes from um, from my home. And this particular uh, line of work allowed me to be able to do that. So let's talk about when you built your wealth practice. How long did it take to build up the business and, and what was that process like? Well, let's see. So I um, started, I started around, so I started like as an intern and in like 1995 and I wasn't quite sure if I was definitely going to do this or not so I then I then went to work and I um I marketed and I sold advertising marketing space which I loved and I had a great experience in doing that and while I was there I did my MBA in banking and finance and then in 1999 um I decided that okay I'm going to uh, I am going to become a, a uh, wealth advisor financial advisor and it, and I came at it you know it was hard you know I I knew that it wasn't going to be easy but I knew that that no matter what I wasn't going to quit it took me I would say you know to, you know I, I didn't have a terrible first year I had an okay first year had a great second year and I've been able to grow the the business every single year by double digit growth um, year over year, and now you know it's been over 20 years that we've had double digit growth. So it's um it's been a it's been a fantastic uh, it's been a fantastic experience. Been able to help hundreds of people achieve their financial goals and objectives. And while I've been able to do that, I've also been able to help uh, myself, my family, uh, work our way towards financial independence as well. What were the biggest challenges in building a small business? I think, 
it is the, you know, in dealing with human emotion, right? So you're working with clients on doing financial planning and developing strategies. And sometimes the geopolitical outside factors get involved and takes take people off of their plans. Um, markets, you know, markets go down, people get nervous, they sell out of their securities when they maybe shouldn't do that. And um, over time, you know, I've been doing this for a, a long time now, and now I've gained the experience of kind of just understanding why, uh, understanding the human psychology as it relates to emotional competency for investors. And so we've been able to, you know, through the different crashes that we've seen from the one in the early 2000s through 08, 09, and the most recent uh, due to the due to the COVID uh, situation where we had, that was a, a crash as well. We've been able to work with clients and help them, help to protect them from themselves and destroying their portfolio. So, you know, the challenge early on was not being able to work as effectively with clients due to um, market volatility and lots of emotional volatility. And so through experience, we've, we now we've, we've become much, much, much better at that. So you mentioned working with high net worth individuals from a wealth advisor perspective. What does that mean? At what point does it become high net worth? Uh, I would say that, you know, 20 years ago, starting off in the business, you know, looking at a, you know, when you'd seek, when you come across a million dollar portfolio, that would be considered to be like, wow, that's, you know, that's a, a substantial amount. And it's, it is a substantial amount. But today with the, uh, with the mass printing of, of U.S. currency or global currency, assets, you know, assets have grown as well. So a million dollar portfolio today is different than a million dollar portfolio from 20 years ago. So to answer your question, I would say that, you know, high net worth uh, individual kind of starts at somewhere around, uh, I would say, five million plus uh, as far as liquid investable assets. That's where I would say it would start. Um, you know, some people say two to 10 million to two to 10 million plus. I think, you know, when you start talking about the high net worth market, it, it's in excess of five million. OK. And how do your clients' strategies change as their net worth grows? And how does your advice to them differ? Yeah. You know, when clients are kind of just getting started, it's more about the accumulation phase. And it's more about investing the money in a, in a way that's going to help to accumulate large amounts of dollars. In late stage investors, investors that have accumulated millions of dollars, um, it's still about growth, but it's also about capital preservation and reducing the amount of volatility. So when you're first getting started, if the markets are going zigzagging up and down and there's not a lot invested, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really, shouldn't really bother you as much. But when portfolio sizes become larger and larger, market volatility does impact uh, investors a lot more. So if you have $1,000 and it goes from $1,000 to $700, you know, it's not that earth shattering. But if a person has 10 million and 10 million then turns into six or 7 million, that becomes, you know, very concerning for uh, for investors. Yeah. And then allocation wise on on people's allocation, do you have a general advice that you that you share based on allocation, a certain percent in the market, real estate, do you advise for real estate against real estate? I know Different financial advisors have different perspectives on that. I would say, you know, to answer that question, it would really depend on what the core goal and the objective is. So if the investor doesn't need income from their portfolio, that portfolio would look different than somebody that's that's taking income uh, that that's taking income from their investments. Is it, you know, is it IRA money slash 401k versus non-IRA money? So we, you know, we look at taxes, we look at need um 
we look at, you know, we try to understand the goals and then we build a portfolio to match the goals and the objectives. A lot of times in the financial services world, you know, they just, be, you know, it doesn't make a difference necessarily what your goals and your objectives are. The advisor is going to suggest what they think is best for the client without really understanding the goals and the objectives. So as a financial advisor, listening very carefully to your clients is the, is probably the most important thing. And then aligning the investments, which are considered like tools uh, with those goals and those objectives. And that's how you that's how you create uh, that. That's good financial planning. Yeah. So what do you do if somebody wants to invest in real estate and they come to you and say, hey, I want to invest in some real estate. Where should I start? I love I love real estate. I think real estate is a very important part of somebody's overall picture. So whether it's whether it's their you know primary residence or let's say let's take a small business owner for an example. Say you know you got a small business owner that has a uh, that has a nice business that that he's renting the space. Well, we try to encourage that business owner to get their own space and get their own tenants, right? To help and have those tenants help pay for their mortgage. So, uh, you know, that it's not real estate's not the end all be all, but it should certainly be part of somebody's overall picture. It doesn't have to be investment real estate. I mean, at least their primary residence should be owned by themselves. But from an investment standpoint, I think, you know, most business owners, if they have the opportunity to, they should own their own, uh, they should own their own uh, real estate. For sure. Yeah. Curious your thoughts on self-directed Roths. Are more people getting uh, into that? Self-directed uh, accounts. IRAs. Yeah. Uh, correct. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think you know that with the uh, there's you know lots of ways that investors can invest with all different types of um, online tools, free investing opportunities, and I think self-directed investing. For the disciplined person, um, is a is a great uh, is a great opportunity. What I what I found in my experience is that investments work, but investors don't because investors get caught up in day to day news headlines, and a lot of times that that gets them you know makes them come out of the market when they shouldn't be. Like you know a lot of times leading into the election, right? Oh. You know, a lot of self-directed people say, you know what, I'm going to come out of the market because I think the election is going to send the market into a tailspin no matter who wins for the, the presidency or if this person wins or if that person wins. And they come out and it's easy to come out. What's hard is getting back in. So many times if self-directed investors are trying to that are following the headline, they're you know, they, they kind of spin their wheels and they really don't get anywhere. That's been my experience. Yeah, it's interesting. Thanks for sharing. Let me just jump to your to you a little bit. So with building the business and meeting with clients and your own investments on the side, real estate and, and other investments, how do you allocate your time and, and time management? What tools or systems do you use for that? I use a um I use something called the model calendar. And so just picture a Excel spreadsheet that has along the top Sunday, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I start my day at um, around four in the morning and I conclude my day normally, uh, normally I conclude my day somewhere around nine, nine thirty. And then I have my must do's, the things, the activities that if I did 
in the course of a day could not fail. Those are on my calendar. Time with my family, my things that, you know, my kids, my spouse, special meet, you know, meetings with my team, when I'm going to be calling clients. So I try to put the, you know, my, my calendar is not just complete, you know, it's not like back to back filled with everything. It does have white space on it, but the calendar has on it the most important areas that I need to make sure that I hit in the course of a week. And not only does that tie in with my business activities, it ties in with my family activities as well as myself as an individual, whether it's, you know, exercise, hobbies, or interests. Cha-ching! You know what that is? That's the sound to start selling on Shopify. It's not every day that I get an advertiser that I actually have been using for quite some time, but Shopify is that. This is your sign this year to finally forget about running all of those run-of-the-mill resolutions and instead start your own New Year's resolution. Shopify is an e-commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter what you are selling, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can focus successfully on growing your business. Shopify covers every sales channel from in-person POS to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. It even lets you sell across social media marketplaces like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without having to learn any new skills in design or code. Thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support you at, support your success every step of the way. Now it's your turn to get serious about selling and try Shopify today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash unveiled. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash unveiled to take your business to the next level today. Once again, that's shopify.com slash unveiled. When did you make your first million? Um, well, I would say that my first million came as a result of business equity. And that was probably around in my early 30s. And I'm still growing business equity. And then it through, you know, and then, you know, the heart, it, it, I think we've all heard the saying, the hardest million is the first million. And then after that, once you understand the concept of how to accumulate wealth, it does become easier over um, over time. I joke with my family all the time. And, you know, we're sitting around and I asked my kids and my spouse, I said, listen, if you had the choice, if you could make a million dollars on your own or win $3 million in the lottery, which would you choose? So my kids and my wife, they chose, they would rather win $3 million in the, in the lottery. And I, and, and they're like, dad, why would you choose, you know, make a million, you know, on your own versus getting 3 million. And I'm trying to teach them the concept that if you win 3 million people that usually trip on, trip over and win $3 million, once that 3 million is gone, that's gone forever. But if you have the ability to make a million on your own, that means that you'd have the ability to make 10 million, 50 million, 100 million through your own effort and your own energy. Big, big difference. If the first million came in your early 30s, maybe walk us through what did it take to, to get that second, the third, maybe to five, and then 10 plus? You know, a lot of it has to do with um, with saving and investing and compounding interest. So, you know, money does money does make money over over time. And a lot of times what people say is, well, if I had some money, then I would make more money with it. But um, and that's true. But you got to you got to start you got to start by saving and you got to start by thinking about building your own financial plan. How can you make 
how can you make money? And, you know, some people make money, you know, being a cattle rancher. I mean, there's, there's a lots of different ways that people can make money. Uh, it's not just one way, but um, I think people need to decide what they want to do and then build out a plan that's going to take them from, you know, point A to point Z. And, and what, what steps did, did you do? I mean, you said early 30s first, what did it take you to get to the second, the fifth, the tenth? Planning, right? So I, I, um, I look at this stuff every day. So the journal, looking at my business results, tr- taking, taking a snapshot of where you, you know, I, we've all heard the saying, what gets measured gets done. You got to measure your progress along the way. So you got to take a financial snapshot. So let's say that somebody says, okay, I'm worth, you know, person says I'm worth $10,000 today. I'd like to be worth $1 million over the next, you know, over the next five to 10 years. Well, how can you do that? And there's a couple of different ways you can do that. And you can do that through saving parts of your income, through uh, through growing uh, equity, right? That's another way to do it. Through through buying, you know, figuring out how to buy real estate and try to do it. So it's, you know, it's business equity, it's real estate equity, it's stock equity, it's income. Those are those are basically four different ways on how one can really accu- accumulate a million dollars for themselves. Do you know what ages you did that along the way, though? I bought my first house um, when I was, uh, I think I was uh, 30, 32 or so. And then I bought another property a couple of years after that. And I bought another property after a couple of years after that. And I bought another property a couple of years after that. So so that was, um, you know, I did it as a metric pace. I never wanted to put myself in a situation where I was going to potentially hurt myself with debt. And so that was that was kind of my, my path. I mean, I always made sure that, you know, that I was saving a percentage of my income. So here here's a great example. So let's say that we line up 10 dimes on the table and the 10 dimes represent your income. And if, you know, most people, what they do is they spend. And then if there's any if there's any dimes left off over at the end of the day, then they'll maybe keep, you know, three cents of every or two cents of every, you know, of, of that last dime where I go with the psychology of saying, okay, I'm going to basically carve off one dime first. And then the other nine dimes, I'm going to, you know, pay my taxes and pay my utilities and my mortgages and all my insurances. And if you pay yourself first, at least 10%, that's going to help to create financial independence. You know, this show is about you, you, you know, it was about, mil- you know, the creation of a millionaire. And I can tell you that if, if somebody saves three dimes out of 10, that's how you become a millionaire and a multimillionaire. So thinking about how can you save 30% of what you earn, the people that save 30% of what they earn, they're the ones that, um, that accumulate mass, massive wealth in, um, in my experience. And is there something that you've seen across your client base or even yourself that has made those that are the most successful successful or their key qualities or traits? Absolutely. They, and almost, I would say a hundred percent of the cases, they live below their means. So they, um, again, you know, if somebody is investing 30% of what they're earning, right. And then if they're paying, taxes on the other, you know, they're, they're living off of a, a small percentage of what they're actually earning. And that's a key element. Another key element of these successful finance, these people that are successfully financially is that they're working with a trusted professional team, right? They, they've got a phenomenal uh, financial advisor that has their back and, and works with them on goal planning and strategic planning around accumulating of wealth. 
They usually have a great tax advisor, great accountant, a banker relationship, great relationship with an attorney. So they've got their they've got their team is another key element. They don't they don't seek the advice of those outside professionals when a crisis hits. They have the team in place prior to the crises. And I'll give you an example on that. You know, during the during the uh, the situation where a lot of business owners weren't able to open their businesses because of COVID and they had the the paycheck protection plan loans, some the business owners that didn't have the bank relationships or the relationships with the with the uh, they didn't have a professional team, they struggled on getting those paycheck protection loans. But the business owners that had key relationships with that the team that I was sharing with you about they had no problems getting their their paycheck protection loans right away. Interesting. And and part of that probably was just because they kept their records better too. Kept their records better. They just everything was just easier. The ones that, you know, as a financial we were getting phone calls from people saying, "Can you help us? Can you you know, you know people that we didn't really know, can you help us get that, you know, get the loan?" And you know, they had no banker relationship. They didn't have they didn't have their payroll records in place. Um didn't have a great relationship with their accountant. It just, you know, the time to make sure that you have all those things ready is when things are calm, not when the not when there's a crisis like we saw in, in the, basically the spring of 2019, uh, 2020. Yeah, awesome. And what's the biggest struggle for people that sell their companies? The biggest struggle is is that I this is what this is what I've seen is that they. They initially, they, you know, in, in the process of growing their business, at a certain point, they kind of forget what it's like in thinking about what am I going to do next, right? We all grow up and, you know, you grow up and you start to, okay, when I get, when I go from, you know, elementary school to middle school or high school, I go to college and when I decide to buy my house or get married or whatever, the, the business owner some many times kind of forgets thinking, what am I going to do after I sell the company? They kind of lost with that. And um, they don't really know what's what's next. So a lot of them struggle with that. A lot of them struggle with what could potentially be the tax impact. Um, a lot of them struggle and say, I've been, you know, deriving income from my business for 40 years. How am I going, you know, and I've been an accumulator. I've been banking money. You're telling me that I'm going to have to draw money on my portfolio. So you see business owners that struggle with that as well. So that it's not a, you know, it's not as easy of a decision as you think it would be to sell your company for 20, 30, 40, 50 million, there's a lot that's involved in it and there's a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah. So those that have gone through it, either sold a business or even retired, I would add, did they struggle after that with the amount of downtime they have? Did they feel like they had to take something else on? How was that transition for Uh, people? I, you know, tonight I was with, uh, a business owner that had a professional services firm, he sold his firm and uh, he's like, I don't even know how I, I'm so busy with life that I don't even know how, how I even had time to work. And so I, in all I've done, I've been dealing with a lot of business owners that have sold their companies. Not one of them has ever came back to me said, I'm bored. I really don't know what to do with my time. The, you know, the time gets filled up with leisure activities um, that they really enjoy. I mean, they, they, and they all say the same thing. I miss the relationships with the clients. I miss, um, helping people. I miss there's certain aspects that they miss, but they do not miss the, uh, the, you know, the daily grind, the stress and the worry. And, um, which is wonderful to see. And I hear that pretty much a hundred percent of the time. Hmm, interesting. So just shifting gears to you, what's your, what was your biggest investment mistake? I would say that, 
I would say that for me, you know, I would say in certain aspects of things, not taking on, not taking, I could have taken on more risk, more calculated risk, but I chose to take on less calculated risk uh, just for fear of, of what happens if it doesn't work out. So, um, you know, even with, you know, my primary residence, right? So I live here in the Hamptons and we've got a, you know, we've got a great, great home, love my house and everything, but I kind of wish that I would have taken on more risk when I was buying my, buying this home, my first home. And I, you know, we're eventually going to sell this house and buy another house. But, um, you know, if I would have taken on more risk then, then, uh, cause prices have skyrocketed here in the Hampton, you know, so sometimes, you know, not taking enough risk is sometimes a, a, uh, a bad, um, business decision. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you know, don't, don't be afraid, right? Um, we got to understand your risks and sometimes you might have to push yourself to, to, to take on a little bit more risk than you're actually comfortable with. And in that situation, you mean a, a bigger mortgage? Possibly. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, big, possibly a bigger mortgage. I mean, it depends. Listen, it, it could also go bad as well, right? Let's say, you, you know, somebody does that and they're buying at the height of the real estate market, you know, that could hurt them too. So there's certainly... Yeah, there's certainly risk that's involved in anything. I'm just, you know, my when you ask me the question around what has been some of what's been my biggest mistake, I would say my biggest mistake is was that I didn't, you know, I really didn't take on I could have taken on more risk over the past 20 years. Listen, I've taken on risk, you know, built a business and I've done real estate ventures and things like that. And I've done it in a, a moderately conservative way, I think. But if I would have been a little bit more aggressive um, over the past 20 years, right? Anything can happen from a month to month or year to year basis. When you're looking at investing, if you look at it really from a 10 or 20 year perspective, historically things do work themselves out. Anything can happen over a five or seven year period, but usually when you look at things from a 10 year or 20 year perspective, things typically work themselves out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome, Rocco. Thanks for coming on. If people want to hear more about you or get a hold of you, where can they do that? They can. Uh, they can Google me, and they could. Uh, you know, one of the things I would tell them is uh, pick up my uh, my first book, The Three Chords Approach to Life and Wealth Management for Business Owners. It's available at uh, on Amazon. It's available. I think it's in Barnes and Nobles and many other locations. Read the book, and you'll get a good perspective as to um, what we do and how we do it. Uh, and then, you know, stay tuned and for our next book, which will be coming out next spring. Awesome. Again, everybody, that's Rocco Net Worth, over $10 million. Thanks for coming on, Rocco. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.